But if you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read our passage this morning, and I'd like to invite Faye to come up and to read that for us. We're going to have an overview this morning of the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to read the first 12 verses of Matthew 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your, your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thank you, Faye. Let's pray as Phil comes to speak to us. Father, please open our hearts this morning to hear your word. Fill, fill, fill with your spirit that he might know your help as he speaks to us now. When you pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Josh, uh, for leading us this morning. Um, if you've got a Bible open, uh, have it open to that passage. We're going to be looking at um, that, that passage a little bit, uh, but also the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, and, and a little bit in Romans as well. So just, uh, just bear with me, uh, but the, 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 many of the quotes will be on the screen as well. So we're beginning this new series in Matthew. And Matthew records Jesus' teaching on the Christian life. It's commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. And the name says it all. Jesus sits his disciples down on a mountain and teaches them about the kingdom of God. It's a block of scripture that is widely accepted as one of the most profound manifestos of religious teaching in history. Most philosophers would say that you don't have to be a Christian to appreciate this Sermon on the Mount. The, the morality, the riches of guidance that Jesus shares with his disciples is amazing. But the deep truth about this sermon is that you have to be a Christian to live it. In other words, there's no point in seeing these chapters as a mere rhetoric of religion. There's no point putting Jesus' teachings on a shelf alongside Guru Nanak, Muhammad, and Shiva because these chapters are not mere morality. They are life. They're not merely what we ought to do. They are about who we are and living it out. Now, one of the reasons why we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, this term, is because we've spent the last six months looking at the rich theology of Romans chapter, what, chapters 1 to 11. 
Those are wonderful chapters in the Bible that help us see who we are in Christ. They are a rich explanation of the work that Jesus has done to bring us into God's kingdom. But you know, having read about and looked at that wonderful rich theology, there has to be a so what, doesn't there? There has to be either reaction or or action, otherwise all we've done for six months is a smug intellectual exercise. So it's great to look at the Sermon on the Mount that helps us live out that rich theology that describes who we are. And even more than that, for our context now, as we begin to come out of lockdown and our interactions with people around us increase, the world is looking for answers. It really is. And Jesus sits his disciples down and says, guys, what I'm saying is the answer is found by looking at my people who live out my kingdom. So live it. When the world is looking for answers, look to my people who live out my kingdom. It's important, therefore, not to read this sermon wrongly. As I said earlier, many people interpret this sermon as a set of moral standards or ethical demands. Uh, So people read, blessed are the poor, rather than the blessed are the poor in spirit. They, They read about being merciful and seeing it as an action that gets us into the kingdom of God. One of the biggest dangers of this sermon throughout history is that people have seen this as a tick list of things to do to get right with God. Or things to do to be a better Christian. It turns this sermon into a list of do's and don'ts. But if we read it like that, we miss the riches. If it's a list of do's and don'ts, it's a burden, not a liberation. Again, that is a misunderstanding of what Jesus is trying to say. Rather, the Sermon on the Mount describes the Christian character. It teaches us what we are, not what we are meant to be. And I'll say that again. The Sermon on the Mount teaches us what we are, not what we are meant to be as Christians. It's like Jesus is saying to his disciples, because because of all that I've made you, live, live. And that's, what we're, that's why we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount for the next term. So this, this morning, we're going to do a broad overview. Um, and then we're going to look at the context, uh, and, and, and we're going to do that by looking at the context and the structure. And then we're going to finish on the reasons why we need to hear it. So we're going to look at context and structure and reasons why we need to hear it. So look at the context quickly. It's, it's phenomenal. I love the context of this sermon. The first four chapters of Matthew's gospel are all about proving that Jesus is the Messiah. We have to remember, for Jews at the time, they were waiting for someone from God who would forgive their sins and, and, and take away the miserable situation that they were in. And right through the first four chapters of the book, Matthew is teaching about Jesus fulfilling prophecies. Six times in those first four chapters, Matthew, as a Jew writing to Jew, says, uh, uh, um, the, this was done so the words of such and such a prophet might be fulfilled. Six times he does it. And the climax of his case that God has come to earth comes in chapter 4, verse 23 to 25. They're incredible verses. Chapter 4, verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness amongst the people. 
News about him spread all over Syria, and people were brought to him, all, and, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering from pain, uh, the, the demon possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. It's an amazing account of what happens when God comes to this world. Every evidence of sin and brokenness in this world is undone by God's king. Sickness is undone. Severe pain is undone. Evil spirits are undone. Paralysis is undone. And his teaching is magnetic. God's king has come to the world and people are flocking to him. Uh, just, just put in mind, put, in, in, your con- put in, your, in your mind, imagine Jesus coming into this world today. Imagine it. And doing that, uh, imagine he, he's come to Catrum, he sat on Westway Common, and, and, and everybody who comes to him is healed. Imagine what Twitter would do. Imagine what the M25 would look like after three days of Twitter going ballistic, or three days of WhatsApp and Instagram. The, the internet would be crashed, the M25 would be a car park, people would be getting out of their cars, walking to Westway Common. Why? Because we know that the healer who has come, everybody who, t- who he touches is healed. It's mind-blowing. It's uh, Matthew, Mark, I, I love Mark. In your own time, look at Mark 3, verse 9 and 10. What it says there is they were so fearful of the crowds crushing Jesus because everybody wanted to touch him that they prepared a boat for him so he could put a body of water between him and the crowd as a kind of buffer. That's how magnetic and dramatic those verses are. Matthew sets the scene. If you're anything like me, you get a bit of a shiver of excitement. And then what does Jesus do? He takes his disciples up a mountain and teaches them. He could have stayed there at the foot of the mountain and carried on healing and performing miracles, but no, 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 no. There's a kingdom. There's a kingdom nobody knows anything about. And this world needs that kingdom. And that's why he takes them up and teaches them. So look, look at the structure with me quickly of this sermon. That's the second point this morning, the structure of the sermon. As I said earlier, Jesus starts by sitting his disciples down and teaching them about his kingdom and how to live it out. And he begins with a general description of what his kingdom means to the individual. So in chapter 5, verses 3 to 10, Jesus does a beautiful description of the Christian character. The Beatitudes, um, that, that's, that, that word is, is the word commonly used for these verses 3 to 10. It's the word blessed in Latin. The Beatitudes are a description of the Christian character in general. And then Jesus goes on in verses 11 to 16 to help us see how that Christian um, relates to the world around him. There's that verse 16, a wonderful command. Let me read it to you, verse 16. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Isn't it amazing? And then Jesus turns to specifics, illustrations of how we can live in this world and apply the Christian character to many different areas of life. That's what the rest of chapter five is about. 
applying who we are as children of the kingdom of God to marriage, to retaliation, to serving, to truth, to anger, even what it means to, when we encounter people who we would regard as enemies. The point of the second half of Matthew 5 is that the Christian character changes how we live in this world. We can't keep it to ourselves. If we belong to Jesus' kingdom, it will affect how we relate to the kingdom of the world. It will break into the kingdom of the world. And then chapter 6 is about how the Christian lives his life in the presence of God. I love that. There's this sense of, in chapter 5, bang, be who you are. And then chapter 6, know who you are and your relationship with your God. It's about a personal relationship with God. And, and verse 33 is the high point of chapter 6. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. What a promise, what a joy, what, a, what, what an absolute summary of everything that chapter 6 uh, promises. And you know, chapter 7 is, is wonderful because it says, do you know what? You're going to be in a broken and a disappointing world. You're going to live your life in, in, in hardship, in persecution, in suffering, because that's what characterizes this world. The rain will fall, the floods will come, and the winds will blow and beat against everything you've built your life on, and it will reveal what's there, the rock or the sand. So be wise. Be wise. Your Savior has come. He's invited you to build your life upon him. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? It's a wonderful structure, isn't it? Really grounding us in the truth of living out all that Christ has made us to be. So if that's the context and the structure, I want us to see why we need this today, and that's the last thing we're going to look at this morning why we need this today. Well, the first thing, the first reason why we need to, to listen to it today is because it teaches us to live out who Christ has made us. It teaches, out, teaches us to live out who Christ has made us. See, Christians today need to listen to Jesus' sermon here. And one of the reasons for that is because modern Christianity has lost sight of the power of what Jesus teaches here. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, even, even 50 years ago, described modern Christianity as increasingly superficial. It, increasingly, Christianity is about helping us feel God or connect through worship or social action rather than taking the, God's word seriously and allowing God's word to speak to us and change us from within. Increasingly, the media pressures Christianity to form what the world thinks church ought to be. Increasingly, Christians are turning away from the power and authority of Scripture, both in their personal lives and in their corporate lives. The Bible is increasingly under pressure to be moved away from the center of Christianity and replaced by ourselves. This sermon is about the Lordship of Christ and His Word. It's about what a life looks like when we live it out before him. And there's a fine line to draw here as we see what, what it looks like to truly live with Jesus as Lord. Because as I said earlier, the Sermon on the Mount teaches us not what we're meant to be, but what we are. That's the fine line. It's not a tick list of what we ought to do. It's a revelation of who we are. 
Why? Because when we've submitted to Christ's lordship, he's living in us and growing these things in us. He's helping us live out what he's made us to be. That's also at the heart of what we've learned as we've worked through the first 11 chapters of Romans. You know, throughout Romans, the message is Christ has given us a massive privilege. He's enabled us to walk in the newness of life. That's the great point of Romans 6, verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In other words, as Jesus died on the cross, there's a spiritual, there's a spiritual harnessing of our old life with his, and as he dies, our old life dies with him too. The power of sin dies with Jesus on the cross. And that's the importance of Easter. Because we don't just celebrate a, 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 happy, a happy ending. Jesus is risen, hallelujah. We, we celebrate the, the significance, the spiritual reality of what happened as Jesus walked out of that tomb on that first Easter Sunday. Let me tell you, just as Jesus was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. As he was raised from the dead, it means our old life is dead and our new life is arrived just as his new life arrived. His new body came out of that tomb and it promises us a new body that will rise again when he comes again. The glory of the resurrection is this, that we are enabled by Christ's death and resurrection to walk in newness of life. We are in the kingdom of God. We can live it. Perhaps the best way to illustrate it is, is just imagine, and work with me on this. this is a bit of a, bit of a long-winded illustration, but work with me. Imagine if you've just won a car magazine prize of a Bugatti Veyron and a holiday home in Germany. It's a bit random, work with me, just follow me. On hearing that news, you hop into your little Ford Fiesta and you head off to Germany to enjoy that prize. And it has to be said, that journey is painful. Your Fiesta is noisy, it's slow, it's just a downright embarrassment. There's nothing good to say about the car except when it's not broken and sitting on your drive. It can get you from A to somewhere near an AA man on the way to B. But then you get to holiday home and you receive those keys of your Bugatti. What are you going to do? If you're a little bit of a petrol head like myself, you're not going to get back into your Ford Fiesta. And neither are you going to get the engine from the Bugatti and try it and hide it under the bonnet of your Fiesta. It would be stupid to do that. No, you're going to get into the Bugatti. You're going to drive it like a thoroughbred vehicle that it is. You're going to put your foot down and see how, it, how fast it goes on those beautiful German autobahns. You're going to take the time to look at the beauty of it. You're going to hear the roar of its engine. And I will not go on, but here's the point of that Bugatti. It's designed to be fast and fabulous, and you're going to drive it like it was designed to be driven. And in the same way, in the same way, if you're a Christian here this morning, the gospel message is that we have been given the keys to a new life by the risen Lord Jesus. Our old lives were characterized by slavery to sin, by guilt, by purposelessness. It was, a, it was as miserable as driving a knackered old Ford Fiesta. But now that we've been given the gift of God, we are truly, truly blessed. 
What do I mean by that? You've been forgiven of your sins. You have eternal hope in the risen Lord Jesus who's brought you out of slavery to sin. You've been given the gift of true, contented happiness in him. So what are you going to do? Paul challenges us not to go back to the life of slavery that characterizes us before we met Jesus. We can't go back to that old way of living. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 14, in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the light of this, as Christians, we have the power to live out all that Christ has made us to be. We can take full advantage of prayer. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We're liberated to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and open the door of our lives to the fullness of Christ. And I hope that excites us over the next few weeks as we take a look at all that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Be who you are designed to be. Live that fullness. There's a second reason why we need to listen to this Sermon on the Mount and it's because we, it gives this world a challenging picture of what real life is about. When you take a step back and look at our modern world, we find that many people today are seeking fulfillment in a cause, so something they can believe in or, or give their lives to. That's why climate change activism is so attractive to young people today. It's because the movement demands so much sacrifice. It's also why veganism is attractive. Many vegans say to themselves, I find my purpose and fulfillment by changing the world or my body one mouthful at a time, and I sacrifice the sweet taste of a beef burger as a small sacrifice to pay for it. The same goes for the feminist movement and the Black Lives Matter movement. These movements are attractive because they are people who believe in a cause and are willing to sacrifice their own personal comfort for it. It's powerful, powerfully motivating. And let me say that in and of themselves, the equality that these movements are seeking and the repair to the environment that these movements are wanting is not wrong. And it's, it, it, it's not wrong. But the danger is embedding our identity in them. Why? Because when the hype's over, when people stop taking the knee, when people move on from climate change to green energy or some other way to save the planet, it leaves us feeling insignificant. We've been left behind. All that we've given our lives to become meaningless eventually. Either that or more dangerously, we become radicalized and start forcing others to believe what we do. But that's not what Jesus is inviting us into here. History tells us what happens when Christians in large numbers start living out what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Prayer meetings fill. Churches become too small for people wanting to meet with one another and the living God through his word. 
In the 1740s, when Whitfield and Wesley in this country were regularly preaching in Bristol, so many people were turning to Christ that pubs were shutting and the race course went bankrupt. You see, belonging to Jesus is about living out the love that his kingdom is built on, a self-sacrificing love and a concern for others that the world needs to see. And far from jumping onto a bandwagon, the true Christian has purpose because we belong to the king. It's not a cause, not a passing fad. We belong to the king. We know that nothing can fulfill our hunger for God except God alone. And Jesus has come. He sent his Holy Spirit to live in us. His power lives in us. He, he enables us to live a life like his own. And it means that when the world sees true Christians living this out, two things will happen. The world will feel challenged, convicted, even, even, even condemned. Why? Because Christians are preaching the kingdom of God in what they say, in how they live, in the joy that is in their hearts. And secondly, they will be drawn. They will be attracted to the one who saved. And that's why we need to listen to Jesus' sermon. It teaches us to live out who Christ has made us and frees us to do it. That's the joy. And as we do so, it presents this world with a challenging picture of what real life is about. So what are you going to do? Well, if you're not a Christian, then can I invite you to follow Jesus this morning? And, 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 and to anticipate all that he is teaching in his word to show you what your life ought to be in him. And Christian and non-Christian here this morning, we can all take the invitation of verses one and two. Let me read it. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, those, those what would I say, clamoring crowds at the bottom of the mountain, he went up the mountainside and sat down. And it's like an invitation. What are you going to do? Are you going to take the invitation, the, 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 the personal invite? Join me. Join me on this mountaintop. Sit down with me, says Jesus. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? My prayer this term is that we would be those disciples who go to him and sit down with him and learn his beautiful words in this sermon. Let's take the time to listen, to be taught, to drink deeply of this teaching so that not only will our souls find satisfaction and peace, but that our lives will be transformed and eventually challenge this needy, needy world. Let's come to Jesus in the coming weeks and listen.